Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to this moment. I am naturally indebted to and the Oscar goes to Hello and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy. Hello. Hello, hello. We're here. We're here. Bringing you another episode. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Today we are talking about the 51st Academy Awards. Yeah, we're in the second half now. And the Best Picture winner... The Deer Hunter. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> a tough classic. Oh, yeah. I I was, since watching this movie, because I had never seen it before, I have worked several shifts at work and whatever, and I keep telling everybody in my room, like, it was good. <laughs> I'm never going to watch it again, though. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah, this was your first time watching? Yeah, I think I, because this time I watched it by myself and I texted you like right afterwards. I was like, I did not like that movie. I did not like, (laughs) I'm going to watch it. Time to do a dance party. (laughs) Going to have a cup of tea. Please don't disturb me. (laughs) Yeah, I needed some recovery time. It's a tough one, but very good. It is good. I was reminded of just like how good of a movie it is. Yeah, it was just really intense. Really, really intense. I mean, yeah, as I told everyone I've come into contact with, it's definitely something everyone should see. It's just I will not watch it again probably now that I've seen it. Mm -hmm. It's in the high end of my top 10 Wow! now of all the films we've watched. We're getting to those eras where like some of the movies that have become icons for us and our peers Mm -hmm. are going to be the best pictures. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious. I was As I was like moving it up the ranks farther and farther and farther, I was like... I hope when we get to like the 90s and 2000s, you could have those like movies a... don't like overtake my yeah. top 25. It's okay. I already know what my first choice is going to be. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Shakespeare in Love? No. <laughs> Although, controversial opinion, I don't hate that one. <laughs> it's it's definitely not the worst film to win Best Picture. No. <laughs> I, I mean, I had to sit through the life of Emile Zoll and Cimarron. <laughs> For goodness sake. And Hamlet. And Hamlet. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Anywho, we'll come to all of that in due time. Yes. Uh, But before we get too much further in this episode, we have to bring you the Penny News. The news about Penny. A pup date. So uh, we finally took Penny back to the beach. Yeah. It's that time of year. We are big March beach people. We have found that that we is don't the time like we like to go. We don't like a very hot beach. No. We're also like not people that, which is funny because we both grew up on the East Coast going to East Coast beaches. Mm-hmm. We're not big swimmers. We like lounging. Yeah. <laughs> Relaxing. I like to bring a cooler. Reading and a good my book. book. <laughs> I, I like what I consider the March Sisters Beach, which is you go and you run around and you have a nice time. But Rejuvenate your health. Yeah, you. <laughs> exactly. That's, yeah. Think that you're about to die <laughs> in a deep depression. Yeah. Basically Fly a kite. Me. <laughs> but anyways, we took Penny to the beach and Bosley has not been with us yet. So yeah. it was our first time as a family going. 
which was very, very fun. Bosley, he liked the beach. He's a lounger, though. He is a lounger. He's uh, on our level, whereas Penny is a... She's crazy. She... I don't know what happens when she gets to the beach. She She becomes becomes a new dog. Yeah, she's so different from her day-to-day life. It's just so bizarre. She wants to be dirty. She She wants wants to play. play. She wants to get in the water. She wants to, like, get digging in the sand. She'll find a stick. She wants to She, like, like, hops on all the rocks. Like, she's so sure-footed on the rocks. She just wants to, like, bound up and down all the rocks and... She wants to smell everything. And also, she's social. Like, yeah. With other people she and dogs. She wants to go up to other dogs. Yeah. Which, if you know Penny, she is not a dog dog. <laughs> which is just so weird. If there's a dog across the street and she is walking, that dog must know that it is not allowed there. Absolutely not. Bark, bark. This is my street. But on the beach, we are all one. <laughs> <laughs> Penny just, I don't know. She's a hippie. She's at a heart. beach girl. Yeah. She we always thought that she was, you know, an Irish Scottish lass. Turns out she's Loving a California girl. Yeah, it's true. Through and through. Good job, Penny. Well, shall we get to this ceremony? Yeah. It's a fun one. It is uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So today we are, of course, talking about the fifty first Academy Awards. They were held on April 9th, 1979 at, of course, the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, they were produced by Jack Haley Jr., mm-hmm. uh, who is the son of Jack Haley, who played the Surprising. Tin Man. Yes, if you can figure that out by the junior in his name. Um, in the past several years, they've been produced by Howard W. Koch, but he is no longer producing them. Um, uh, just a like, quick little tangent about him here. He has served the Academy in so many ways. He's been... Howard he, Koch? Yeah. Yeah. He produced uh, eight of the Academy Awards ceremonies that we've talked about already. Wow. Um, and he served on the Academy Board of Governors since 1969. He was the treasurer from 70 to 72, the first vice president from 1972 to 76, the vice president from 1976 to 1977, and then served two terms as the president from 77 to 79. So right now hmm. he is the president of the Academy. So he's not producing this year. Oh, I see. Interesting. Yeah. Um, the ceremony was directed by Marty Pasita, as has been the last several as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack, just like a quick little insight into Jack Haley, who he is a great producer. He's done a bunch of like special TV events at this point. He becomes, I just found this so intriguing. He's the second husband of Liza Minnelli, which Mm. I feel like is just like very weird with like his dad and Judy Garland. And now he's the second husband of Liza. It's just very, very interconnected. I mean, yeah, all of Hollywood is. But I bring this up because he wins an Emmy for this ceremony. Oh, cool. uh, So he wins the Emmy for Outstanding Program Achievement Special Events. Nice. So I figure I may as well just mention that. Um, this year, they were hosted by Johnny Carson for the first time. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, which was a really, really big deal. It was a big draw for a lot of people, especially people who were outside of the Academy's normal viewership, mm-hmm. because everybody knows who Johnny Carson is. Right. People know who Bob Hope is, too, but he's kind of like old hat by this point. You know, he's done it so many times. He's and... also not as cutting edge as Johnny Carson is. Right. Yeah. It's a new it's a new era. So. Uh, the telecast uh, was watched by 46.3 million viewers and earned a 34.6 Nielsen rating in the U.S. 
Um, of all of the ceremonies, it is the ninth most watched ceremony that was televised. Huh. Interesting. I feel like this is some a facet of this stuff that I don't talk about that much is like, yeah, you know, How so popular I, it is. Yeah, exactly. So I figure since I have a moment here, I'll just mention the ones that have already happened and where they fall in this order. So the fourth most watched was Annie Hall, but of course it was the 50th mm. Academy Award. So that oh, came in right. fourth. Uh, with 48.5 million viewers. For, uh, hold. Uh, the Godfather Part 2 came in sixth. Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest came in seventh. And then, of course, this, The Deer Hunter, came in ninth. Hmm. So the other ones are all newer. Yeah. We haven't gotten to them yet. But I haven't talked about that much. I figure that's a part of this that we can include now, since there's a lot more information and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, of course, <laughs> it's The Deer Hunter. It's a political movie, so... <laughs> Is it a political movie? It's not... Uh, okay. Yes. People who know what this movie is know it's not a political movie. But... Just continue saying what you're saying. What I'm trying to say is that it does paint a specific picture about the Vietnam War. Now, it's an accurate one, obviously. But it does talk about the Vietnam War, which in and of itself is an explosive topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so prior to all of this, uh, the police did have to deal with demonstrators who mm-hmm. objected outside of the ceremony. Uh, they claimed it was a racist film, a fantasy picturization of the Vietnam cause. There were 13 arrests made. Yeah. So that, of course, happens to start off the evening. Yes. Uh, so for this particular ceremony, they uh, one of the fun things that happens in it is singers Sammy Davis Jr. and Steve Lawrence perform a medley called, quote, Oscars Only Human, Not Even Nominated. And it was a medley of songs that had not won an Oscar. Uh, they were composed movie songs, but not nominated for Best Original Song. Oh. Uh, so, that's, so just like popular songs yes, that, that maybe could have been nominated before. Yes. And it was kind of poking fun at the Academy's misjudgment of certain songs mm. um, and their like pop relevance that didn't translate to the Academy, which I think is very interesting. Well, and one thing that's interesting about this, the timing of this, is that through the late 70s and then the 80s and 90s, all the songs basically that win best original song are like hugely like pop culture mm-hmm. songs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That are some of the most popular songs that we still even know to this day from that era. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for this telecast, Jack Elliott and Alan Ferguson were the musical directors. So they're the co-partners in this medley essentially. Mm. Um, and I think this is a very fun idea because it's a way to celebrate things that didn't win, but were still relevant. And it's also kind of a way to poke fun mm-hmm. at yourself. Um, unfortunately, the Academy's music branch protested this segment. They really, really urged that it be dropped Ew. from the ceremony. Why? It was only kept after Jack Haley Jr. threatened to leave as a producer and pull Johnny Carson with him. Oh, my gosh. That they relented and let the segment go. Because Jack Haley Jr. thought it was funny, thought it was a good show, thought it was in good spirit. Uh, And obviously, he's the one who's connected to Johnny Carson through all of this and brought him on board. So that's a lot of power. In fact, that's the main drawing point to this particular ceremony. Yeah, right. Of course, it it went through and it was all fine. And it's not a big deal. It's one of those things where it's like, stop being so pretentious, you know? Yeah. A, A lot of times, Hollywood struggles to take a joke. 
Yeah. And also to see like, oops, we got that one wrong. I feel that. It's not even like that though. It's like, oh, these are other good songs. (laughs) Isn't that funny that like there were other popular songs that didn't get awards? Or popular songs that stood the test of time and whatever. Yeah. So (laughs) just to kind of keep on this sort of off kilter feeling note, um, it's this ceremony is also very remembered because it was the final public appearance for John Wayne. Mm. He did have stomach cancer at this point. He was 72. He was, you know, looked very sickly, but Mm. there was a standing ovation for him. He presented the award for best picture. Ah. um, And he died two months after this ceremony on June 11th. Funny enough, far as our anniversary. Oh my. Yeah. Um, Anyways. (laughs) I kind of felt a little weird. Like, obviously he was allowed to present best picture because they knew he was about to die. Mm -hmm. I felt a little bit weird about that this year. Oh yeah. Because Harrison Ford was presenting best picture. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like it felt, and he didn't look very good. Nope. He And he yeah. could barely talk. You're talking about these awards that just happened. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, In 2023. Yeah, not good. And it felt like, it was like, is this the last time we're going to see Harrison Ford? I hope not. Is he going to be but able I felt to that way do about... the premiere for Indiana Jones and the yeah. fifth movie? I felt that way about Liza Minnelli when she came out with Lady Gaga. Yeah. You know, it's an honor we bestow on the elders of the community that... You know, you hope it's not the last, but if it is, at least it's on a big stage. Or sometimes you give it to some of the Hollywood olds and, uh, and they bumble. They bumble it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty. <laughs> um, but I also bring this up because it was received in a weird way. Yeah. Because uh, John Wayne, of course, he is a star of the film The Green Berets. He was a very prominent Vietnam War supporter. Uh, and he had to give the award to the deer hunter, which people found to be odd. So, you know, there's that. Uh, yeah. Uh, just to keep the, the good times train a going. Uh, <laughs> this is also the final public appearance for Jack Haley, father of producer Jack Haley Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, he presents uh, Best Costume Design with his Wizard of Oz co-star Ray Bulger. Oh, that's so fun. the Scarecrow. Yeah. So sadly, this is also his last public appearance too. He mm. does pass away shortly after this, but it, it's very special. I meant to pull a quote and I didn't, but there are a lot of very, very sweet quotes about this particular ceremony and the father-son relationship because mm. basically his father was like, oh yes, this is nepotism, but like he deserves it and it's going to be really fun. Yeah, right. <laughs> he's like, my son is a good boy. He's like doing good stuff. So, <laughs> and he's putting on a good show. Why wouldn't we give it to him? Yeah. So all of the weirdness aside now, just some stats I wanted to make sure we shared this week. Um, Best Director nominees Warren Beatty and Buck Henry become the second pair of directors nominated in the category for the same film. Jerome Robbins and Robert Weiss being the other previous winners um, for co-directing 1961's West Side Story. Mm-hmm. Um, Warren Beatty is also the first person to earn acting, directing, producing, and screenwriting nominations all for the same film. Mm-hmm. And I want to clarify some stuff about this because there is some contention. Um, blah, blah, blah. We know. Okay. <laughs> you don't know our listeners. Hollywood savior, boy savior, boy wonder, Orson Welles. <laughs> Did it first, but, but he wasn't nominated as a producer. <laughs> do you want to do my section for me? All right. I have pulled Film, a bunch okay. of research here. Film bro, Kristen, tell us why your boy Orson Welles deserves... First of all, he is not my boy. <laughs> <laughs> 
the buck stops there, <laughs> sir. How dare you? How dare you? And if you ever call me a film bro again, <laughs> we will be getting divorced. <laughs> All right, continue. June 11th will only be the day that <laughs> John, Wayne John Wayne died. died. That's all you'll have to remember. <laughs> so, Orson Welles. <laughs> but now I feel dumb because I have like a page of research Good. about this situation. I want to hear about it. Jeez Louise. All right. Well, I'm going to get back to my outline. <laughs> While Orson Welles had previously achieved uh-huh. Okay, he achieved the same feat for Citizen Kane. At the time, the rules were determined that the studio releasing the film rather than individuals were listed as producers. So the yeah. official nominees were produ- or the producing company, not the people. Well, and I mean, go listen to the rest of the episodes of this podcast. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, the studio system is in charge. There aren't really individual voices, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and of course, I've like there's a bunch of um, writings from the Academy's Margaret Herrick Library talking about these stats and about this particular situation. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, it basically comes down to from a sh- this is what they said about it. So I pulled an interview from a film critic, uh, Edward Copeland, just talking about this with some of the staff members. And uh, he basically asked, should he have been considered as having four nominations for Citizen Kane or not? And they say about it, quote, from a strictly statistical standpoint, no, the rules were not the same then as now. So technically, as that statistic is stated, you can only apply to films from the 1950-24th Academy Awards on when the nominees for Best Picture became individually named producers rather than production companies. Mm-hmm. The nominee for Outstanding Motion Picture for Citizen Kane was Orson Welles' company, Mercury. So if you want to consider that in the, quote, spirit of the statistic, you may feel free, in which case you may also want to give consideration to Charlie Chaplin and his honorary award for the circus, given how the citation is worded. Mm. But again, from a strict statistical standpoint, neither of these two meet the Warren Beatty statistic of four competitive nominations for the same film in the stated categories so that's the official statement from the academy about it and i would say that because of the studio model it was almost easier to get those that he did like it was easier for for orson welles to get recognized for all of those things Mm -hmm. because of the studio system yeah the studio system allows it to be more of a package than a collaboration of artists so yeah that's what I have to say about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, another statistic that I want to bring up is that um, both John Voight and Jane Fonda win for Best Actor and Best Actress from the same film, Coming Home. Mm-hmm. And this is the fourth film to win both lead acting categories. Uh, so far in history, this has happened seven times. Uh, obviously, we've up talked to about- like present day. Yeah, up to present day. Yeah. Uh, the most recent being, you know, this year. Mm-hmm. Um. The ones that we have talked about so far include It Happened One Night, mm-hmm. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Network, mm-hmm. and then this one, Coming Home. In the future, films on Golden Pond, The Sounds of the Lambs, and As Good As It Gets in uh, 1997 will all have dual Best Actor, Best Actress wins from the same movie. Yeah. So the last thing I want to talk about today to wrap up my little segment here is something that interests me that I haven't talked about that that much yet, which is marketing Mm -hmm. and the Oscar campaign. As we've mentioned briefly in the past, this is something that is becoming a little bit of a thing. 
this idea of campaigning for your Oscars. We've seen a couple of small examples of it, but this year there's a pretty significant shift in some of that. I want to talk about this in correlation with the deer hunter. Mm-hmm. So the reason I bring this up is because this is considered the first real use of a quote, Oscar consultant, which is a person on the marketing team that is solely dedicated towards the Oscars campaign Mm -hmm. rather than like the general marketing campaign, getting it in the most hands of the most people, blah, blah, blah. This is someone who is specifically focused on Academy Awards. Um, So to kind of get into this, apparently Universal, the film's distributor, thought this was a bit of a bomb. Um, they had a sneak preview in Detroit. Um, and afterwards it just, it didn't go well. They thought they might even slash the movie. They weren't totally sure what to do with it. Um, producer on the film, Barry Spikings was owed a favor by manager turned producer, Alan Carr. Alan Carr had just finished creating very successful marketing campaigns for Saturday Night Fever and Grease. Grease being like an explosion. It's a pop culture phenomenon, mostly due to his uh, marketing campaign for it. These days, <laughs> just a little update on Mr. Alan Carr. He is more known for his flops. Mm-hmm. Um, other than those films, he did the Village People film musical Can't Stop the Music, Grease 2. Uh, and he's also notorious for producing the 1989 Oscars, which featured the Rob Lowe with Snow White situation. Oh, very good. So he, he's known for his like party antics, but uh, that doesn't, hasn't really paid off much in his later career. Classic. Anyways, uh, Spiking showed Carr the film. Carr was blown away by it and really, really wanted it to get the Oscar recognition that he felt it deserved. So he took over the marketing campaign and he decided to do something that was unheard of at the time, which was he put it on TV, on LA's Z Channel which I'll talk about that in a second. He put it on the Z channel to play it before it even opened in theaters. He then convinced the studio to release it in one theater each in LA and New York for a year-end two-week Oscar qualifying engagement. So two weeks at the end of the year, in the year that he wanted, they wanted to get it nominated so that it could technically have had its release. Mm-hmm. Um, and then afterwards, pulled it immediately to await nominations in January. So during this time, it plays on the Z channel, which is ideal because it's a very, very small cable channel that has a very small but a crucial local audience. Hundreds of them are Oscar voters because it's mostly the Beverly Hills area. Um, So this is something that has happened in the past. So, for example, the Z channel is also credited for Annie Hall's boost in popularity and voter recognition mm-hmm. um, and is a main contributor for why it may have won Best Picture the year before. Um, because for Annie Hall, the week before the nominating ballots were mailed out, uh, they played it on the Z channel, um, which you know got a lot of people to see it who may not have gone to see it in the theaters that were specifically in the market that they wanted this to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, Since 1975, studios had kind of cautiously been doing this. Um, They weren't totally sure if this was going to work as a strategy or not, but there's been a lot of correlation to unexpected acting nominations from this particular channel. Mm -hmm. Diane Carroll for Claudine, Glenda Jackson for Hedda, Maximilian Schell for The Man in the Glass Booth, Liv Ullman for Face to Face, and uh, lots of other people who may not have gotten recognized from their movies from a wide release, but because people like to stay at home, Mm -hmm. they like to watch movies in the comfort of their own home. And a lot of the Oscar voters, you know, are older people who may not be going to the theaters that often anymore. About this, uh, 
Lloyd Zeipzig, who was the West Coast Director of Publicity and Advertising for United Artists, said, quote, The Z Channel is a key portion of an ideal campaign for an Academy Award. He was part of the people who arranged the Annie Hall showings. He said, quote, we can reach voters under ideal conditions. They're not hassled by popcorn or parking or someone coughing in the next row, which then gives, of course, them a better experience. It gives them a better, more intimate experience with the movie, whatever. Uh, And with Annie Hall, of course, they made it available on the Z channel almost as if it was a screener while it was still in theater so that Mm -hmm. people felt like they were getting something special before the Academy nominations. So this strategy had not really been tried as an intentional move, specifically this idea of putting it just on this channel, doing a really limited theater release so that the public wouldn't get in the ears of people because they kind of knew that it may not be well received. The Mm -hmm. the screening they did did not go well. So they were really worried that it was going to have a bad public response. But if the film could get critical positive response first, then it could enable the public to see the movie in a different light, right. which worked. It worked really well. And I think this is a model that people have used for other movies that may not have done well just on their own in the public eye. But when you have professionals and the critics and these highfalutin people telling you, no, 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 this is a work of art. This is good. Before you know the opposite happens, then it becomes something that's bigger than what the public may have originally thought it would be. So anyways, uh, it worked. It enabled the Dear Hunter to get traction so close to nominations. Um, it ended up getting nine nominations. It caused a lot of public interest in the movie, and it ended up winning five Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. So I bring all of this up. I know that was a little bit long-winded, but people are trying stuff now. Yeah, There's a new strategy that's happening in order to get Academy Awards. And it's hard because part of me is like, yes... This film may not have gotten these awards if someone didn't intervene and be like, no, 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 watch this and Mm -hmm. like watch it in the privacy of your own home. Have this experience without the distraction of being annoyed by the person sitting next to you that you don't know or whatever. Be comfortable. Sit in your own emotions while you watch it, blah, blah, blah. And that will give you the experience that will make you see why this is worthy of these Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm glad that that happened for this movie because I think that's all true. And Mm -hmm. I think it would have been passed over. It could have been passed over if that hadn't happened. That said, I also am of the court of public opinion, too. Which is that, like, I think movies that the general public likes should be recognized as good if they are good, if they have merit, if they have quality, and sometimes people are too highbrow to recognize that. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of both and. I think different movies are for different things. So anyways, uh, this is something we'll be observing as we go forward, and I hope that that interests other people because it definitely interests me. Uh, I think it's like a weird, not like political part of the Academy Awards, but it is a part of the strategy that makes it less clear cut. Yeah. Because right. you don't just have the new Clark Gable movie coming out that people are seeing or whatever. Yeah. So anyways, that's what I have to say about that. So just to wrap up this section, we'll go through our Academy Award winners for this year. Of course, best picture goes to the deer hunter. Mm-hmm. Best director goes to Michael Cimino for the deer hunter. Best actor goes to John Voight for coming home. Best act- maybe a, a little uh, oh we should have given it to you when you played in Midnight Cowboy oh, for John Voight. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, I coincidentally, mean, uh, oh. the person who beat him 
was John Wayne. Ooh, weird. It all comes back around. Yeah. Maggie Smith also won an Oscar that same year. Oh, well, she wins one this year. I know. Best Actress goes to Jane Fonda for Coming Home. Best Supporting Actor goes to Christopher Walken for The Deer Hunter, Mm -hmm. which is a very well-deserved award. Uh, Best Supporting Actress, as you kind of said, Mm -hmm. goes to Maggie Smith for California Suite. Best Screenplay written directly for the screen goes to Coming Home. Best Screenplay based on material from another medium goes to Midnight Express. Best Foreign Language Film goes to Get Out Your Handkerchiefs from France. Best Documentary Feature goes to Scared Straight. Best Documentary Short Subject goes to The Flight of the Gossamer Condor. Best Live Action Short Film goes to Teenage Father. Best Animated Short Film goes to Special Delivery. Best Original Score goes to Midnight Express. Best Adaption Score goes to The Buddy Holly Story. Best Original Song goes to Last Dance from Thank God It's Friday. Best Sound goes to The Deer Hunter. Best Costume Design goes to Death on the Nile. Also, pause here to just mention uh, The Wiz also got nominated this year. I know. It got nominated for a few things and should have won something. And I meant to bring this up when I talked about... uh, the Tin Man and Scarecrow, because that's why they wanted to give out the Best Costume Design Award, because mm. The Wiz was nominated for Best Costume Design. Got it. And my assumption, personally, is that they probably thought it was going to win. and didn't. Yeah. So, the Academy loves to do that. Mm-hmm. They, <laughs> they love to try to set up a moment if they can. <laughs> Anyways... Best Art Direction goes to Heaven Can Wait. Best Cinematography goes to Days of Heaven. And Best Film Editing goes to The Deer Hunter. And there are a couple Academy Honorary Awards this year. One goes to Laurence Olivier. Oh, boy. For his, quote, remarkable career and body of work entertaining audiences through the medium of film. One goes to Walter Lance for creating... Memorable characters in animation, including Woody Woodpecker. Oh, interesting. Uh, One goes to King Vidor, who is a film director for his achievements in direction in cinema. Uh, He is also one of the people who transitioned from the silent era to the sound era. Mm -hmm. Um, We mentioned his name a few times. Yeah, he's big on the social issues. And yeah, yeah, you can look him up if you want to know more. And then one is given to the Museum of Modern Art Department of Film. In recognition of educating and inspiring the public regarding the artistic value of cinema. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Mostly for their inclusion of film in modern art stuff. Yeah. The Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award goes to Leo Jaff this year, who, of course, was the chairman of Columbia Pictures. Um, He's, you know, popular film producer and executive, blah, blah, blah. There is a special achievement award given out this year. Uh It's given to lots of people. One award, though. Les Bowie, Colin Shilvers, Dennis Koop, Roy Field, Derek Meddings, and Zora Parasic for the visual effects in Superman. Oh, yeah. So they're amazed by this. And you watched Superman. Is this a merited award? Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. Cool, cool, cool. So in the end, it all shakes out. Of course, The Deer Hunter and Heaven Can Wait both have nine nominations. And in the end, The Deer Hunter takes five, Coming Home takes three, and Midnight Express takes two. The rest are one or less. Um, and uh, yeah, again, a bit of a uh, rocky ceremony, but that's what the 70s are for. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> And uh, with that... We can take a little break here, and when we get back, you can tell us about the movie The Deer Hunter. Yeah.
And we're back. All right. Time for the year 1978. You sound despondent. With some births, of course. Uh, my section is going to be sad. Oh, good. <laughs> if you came to the Deer Hunter episode looking for a good time, you should maybe read the synopsis first or yeah. something. Uh, well, starting with some famous births that we're happy about. Okay. January Jones, Ashton Kutcher, James Franco, Kamel Nanjiani, Keenan Thompson, Jennifer Goodwin, Jake Johnson, Justin Long, Nick Kroll, Bill Hader, Zoe Saldana, Topher Grace, Andy Samberg, Anthony Mackie, Rachel McAdams, Katie Holmes, John Legend. Wow. All the people that I think of when I think of like celebrities, like the people <laughs> that are like. That's it. That's all yeah, of them. <laughs> like they were the celebrities that were in the moment when I was yeah. little. Mm hmm. Also, a bunch of like male comedians, which is yes, funny. Yeah. Hmm. There were a lot more this year. I'm omitting a lot. Sorry. Of births? Uh, of all of these. Of all of it. Okay. Um, so many debuts. This may be the first time I've ever had more debuts than births. Hmm. Um, Pedro Almodovar, Kevin Bacon, Jim and John Belushi, Cheech and Chong, Billy Crystal, Jamie Lee Curtis, Corey Feldman, Ed Harris, Michael Keaton. John Malkovich, Laurie Metcalf, Liam Neeson, Mandy Patinkin, Christopher Reeve, Gary Sinise, James Spader, Mary Steenburgen, and Robert Zemeckis. Wow. All the people that... made their first films this year, 1978. Um, And this may be the shortest deaths I've ever had. Uh, We have actor John Cazale, who I will talk extensively about. So I will not mention anything else about him. Okay. And uh, Jack Warner. Oh, no. Which is crazy that he's like one of the last like major early days producers. He has seen 50 years of Academy Awards. He literally was a film executive for 55 years. Oh, my word. From 1918 to 1973, he worked in the film industry. Hats off to you, Mr. Warner. Yeah. Of course, he was one of four Warner Brothers that helped start Warner Brothers. Yes, yes. Uh, And he was the one most, like, intimately involved Mm -hmm. in all company stuff. Yeah. I mean, he was by far the most influential and the most successful and the one who kind of made Warner Brothers what they were. So hats off to Jack Warner. Yeah. Wow. We'll remember you forever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so some news, uh, bits from 1978. Um, this is when we have the ousting of David Begelman from Columbia. Okay. So we haven't really talked about Columbia at all because they are just a minor studio at this point in history. Um, they go in and out of being like one of the big time to one of the small time Mm. to one of the big time to one of the small time. Mm -hmm. Um, so David Begelman is their head of production. He worked at MCA and rose up to vice president there, then left to help co-found CMA. Oh, okay. While he was with MCA, uh, one of his main clients was Judy Garland. Gotcha. Um, So he's been in the game for a long time. He then left CMA in 1973 to take over as one of the heads of the failing Columbia. Um, In February of 1977... Actor Cliff Robertson received a 1099 saying that he'd received $10,000 from Columbia in 1976. He had, in fact, not. Uh Uh-oh. 
made anything for Columbia or received any money from them. Uh-oh. Then, uh, as he started doing some investigating mm-hmm. and called the police and everything, he found that his signature was mm. on a cashed check and that mm. had been forged. Mm. Um, which then, through the FBI, was eventually tracked to Begelman. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, he was fined and suspended from Columbia um, and made to do uh, public service or something as his punishment. Was he not fired? <laughs> not yet. Oh, my word. Also, embezzlement is a felony, by the way. And <laughs> he received public service <laughs> for this. Um huh. So he was fined and suspended from Columbia while they had an investigation themselves. Um, after which, it was discovered that he embezzled $65,000 from Columbia. Uh-oh. Which, all in all, is not a huge sum of money. I was going to say, that's not the biggest amount from a film company. But it is still... Embezzlement. A crime. Yeah. <laughs> He's literally stealing. Um, so the board of directors wanted to deal with it very quietly. They didn't want it to go out to the press. Hmm. Uh, they're already failing as a company, so <laughs> they want to keep their name uh, untarnished. But Robertson and his wife ended up talking to the press. Oh. So they couldn't stop them because mm. they were like totally uninvolved in the whole thing. Yeah. And not a part of Columbia in any way. CEO of Columbia, Alan Hirschfield, uh, was let go first because he was refusing to reinstate Bagelman on moral grounds. What? So they let go of him because he wouldn't bring back the guy that embezzled all this money. Correct. Uh, Bagelman was then let go uh, with Columbia citing emotional problems. Good grief. (laughs) If I had emotional problems that led me to steal 65 grand, I think I'd be in more trouble than just getting fired. So that was the end of Bagelman. Daniel Melnick ended up being hired uh, as head of production He was head of production at MGM and was hired by Columbia then. Um, Faye Vincent was hired to replace Hirschfield as CEO. Of course, he is most famously known as the eighth commissioner of Major League Baseball and the senior vice president of Coca-Cola. Charlie Chaplin's coffin was stolen. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) uh, Three months after he was buried in a Swiss cemetery, and his coffin and his body were held for ransom. I I, I do know about this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The culprits ended up being arrested without having to be paid, which was good. Um, And his body and coffin were reburied in a sealed grave. Mm. So just a crazy thing that happened. National Lampoon's Animal House (laughs) is the third highest grossing film of 1978. It is the first blockbuster comedy to gross over $100 million. Wow. Wow. A new era of 80s comedy is coming. And part of this was because it was marketed directly to teenagers. Ah. It was made and marketed to teenagers, which is something that really hadn't been done since like the beach movies of like like, the 50s and 60s. Yeah, the 60s surfer beach ones. Yeah. Um, But they were like, I don't know, not good movies. Whereas this was like... I don't know, good in a different way. Because yeah. this is also not a good movie, but it's no, like... No, no, let's not get confused here. <laughs> no, but it's it's like a well-made movie. It's raunchy, but it's funny. The jokes right. are there. The comedians are there. And it has a there. bunch of like the most famous comedians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas those 60 Surfers movies are like, hey... The uh, lowest yep. budget yeah. Yeah, C movies. Yeah, terrible actors, yeah. terrible scripts. Yeah. 
Um, so that's going on. Definitely <laughs> changing the game for the genre of comedy. Yeah. By far. Um, Superman also comes out this year. It is the second highest grossing film of the year. Uh, it grossed $134 million in the year 1978. It also breaks the record for the new most expensive film ever. Oh, wow. Okay. So Superman had a budget of $55 million. Wow. Which is crazy. So it beats out uh, Cleopatra for the most expensive film to date. Partly because Marlon Brando sets a new record, becoming the first actor to make over $3 million for one picture. That should not be allowed. He was He's the not first, even the main character. He was the first to break a million. He plays He's Superman's the dad. First to break three million. That is insanity. All insanity. Right. So he was paid three million and three point seven million to be correct. That's almost four. And then he was paid over eleven percent of the gross of oh the film God. as well. He worked that out. Uh uh, so his total earnings were well over $15 million for the film. Um, for his 10-minute appearance in the film <gasps> that he only shot for 12 days. <laughs> oh, boy. The heart- uh, of course, you Apocalypse mentioned that Apocalypse Now is coming for you, he Buster. He is only uh, the title character's father yeah. in the film. Um, he also received top billing over Christopher Reeve, oh. who was Superman. I'm losing my mind. I'm losing my mind. The other thing that's really funny is Gene Hackman also received top billing over Christopher Reeve. So poor Christopher Reeve. His alien father and his Earth father both. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Ain't that just the way? Yep. So also this year we have the 31st Primetime Emmys. Uh, The most notable thing for this year, uh, after doing some research, is that the AC went down at the Pasadena Civic Auditorium during the ceremony. In <laughs> the first week of September, which, as we know, is very hot in L.A. Yes. So that was not happy for everyone. Um, and Underdog Taxi, the show, beat out All in the Family's final season for Outstanding Comedy Whoa. Series. Okay. So on its way out, it did not win its final chance. Wow. And then we have the 33rd Tony Awards. The Elephant Man wins Best Play and Sweeney Todd wins Best Musical. Woo-hoo. Yeah. Two very good classics. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's no award for revivals this year because there were not enough produced to give an award to. All right. Um, Richard Rogers was given a Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, and then Henry Fonda was given an honorary award that was presented by his daughter, Jane Fonda. Cute. Very fun. Um, Sweeney Todd had nine nominations and eight wins. And The Elephant Man took home three out of seven. Nice. So a classic Tony Knight. Uh, on to The Deer Hunter. Just mentioning, this movie is very dark, and there's lots of crazy themes yeah. that are very distressing. So It's hard to give we're gonna a talk about trigger warning here. Yeah. But uh, we'll mention what is going on uh, in the show notes. So yeah. check that out. But a recap of the film, very long because it's a convoluted plot. Sorry. Mike, Nick, and Steven, plus Axel and Stan, work together at the local steel mill outside of Pittsburgh. They frequent their friend John's bar together and go hunting for deer together. Steven is marrying his fiancée, Angela, even though she is pregnant with another man's baby, before he, Mike, and Nick go off to Vietnam. 
Linda moves in with Mike and Nick, who are both in love with her, to escape her abusive father. In Vietnam, Mike is a Green Beret and runs into Stephen and Nick in a jungle village before they are all captured. In captivity, they are forced to play Russian roulette over and over as many of the captives are killed in the game. Finally, Mike and Nick turn the game on their captors and they flee with Steve. As they escape, Nick is rescued by a helicopter, but Mike and Steven fall into the river below. Steven's legs break when he hits a rock in the river and Mike carries him until they run into a refugee train leaving Saigon. Nick, after being treated in a military hospital, happens one night upon a game of Russian roulette and is forced to play by French businessman Julien Grinda. He snaps while playing and tries to kill the others in the room and himself, but each chamber he goes through is empty. He and Julian flee, but not before Mike sees him leaving. Mike finally returns home two years after he left and struggles reintegrating into society. He and Linda struggle to make things work between them. He learns of Stephen's whereabouts, a VA hospital where both of his legs have been amputated, and he convinces him to try to leave to face real life again. Stephen tells him he's been receiving large amounts of money from Vietnam, and they guess from Nick. Mike returns to Vietnam to find Nick, knowing he's been playing roulette nonstop. He doesn't even recognize Mike. Mike tries to reason with him, playing roulette against him, and in the end, he seems to recognize Mike in a glimpse right before he kills himself in the game. Mike and friends attend Nick's funeral and all sing God Bless America somberly in his memory. You didn't even mention the deer hunting. They, I said they hunt deer. Okay, well, I'm going to interject really quick because <laughs> one essential plot point <laughs> is that Mike is very much like, you have to kill deer as humanely yeah, yeah. You yeah. have to shoot them with one single shot, nice clean through the head, and that's what that's what Nick recognizes at the end. That's the I glimpse know. he gets. Yes, I know. Okay, that's essential to the plot. Uh it's essential to the themes, not necessarily the plot. Anyways. Okay. Sorry uh, if you haven't seen the movie. <laughs> this movie had a budget of fifteen million dollars. A far cry from the fifty-five million that was spent <laughs> on Superman. Um, and it grossed fifty million. Wow. So it was number 10 for the year 1978. The main things I'm going to talk about um, are how the film originally came about and then about actor John Cazale. Okay. So there's a lot of debate about how this film originally came about. Um, So I'm going to go through all the different stories of this. Okay. Um, So it definitely did start as a spec script titled The Man Who Came to Play. That was passed around starting in 1968. Um, that was written by Louis Garfinkel and Quinn Redeker. Uh, the plot of this followed a cynical Vietnam vet who decided to play Russian roulette for a living to stave off his depression and suicidal obsession after the war. Hmm. It was still considered taboo to make any films about Vietnam, obviously, yeah. uh, when it was written. So nobody wanted to make it. Um, eventually, the script wound up in the hands of Universal producer Michael Dealey. Um, Dealey also co-ran a subsidiary of EMI called EMI Films. Um, so in the deal that he purchased the script through, EMI would produce the film and Universal would distribute the film because mm. he worked for both. He said about the script, quote, The screenplay had struck me as brilliant, but it wasn't complete. The trick would be to find a way to turn a very clever piece of writing into a practical, realizable film. Yeah. Because it's just about a cynical guy who wants to play Russian roulette well, because the war is over. And it's more of, and you can see this in the movie, it's more about the feelings than it is about the right. plot right? by any means. 
Um, so director Michael Cimino was pretty new to Hollywood. Um, this is only his second film directing the deer hunter. Oh, wow. Which is crazy. Um, he had just signed with William Morris agency after a string of successful commercials. Congrats. Yep. Uh, he was in the New York, uh, market and made commercials. Uh, his first Hollywood thing was helping on the script for silent running, then William Morris Agency was eager to sell package deals, as was sort of the new trend at the time. Um, so they had him working on a script for other WMA star, Clint Eastwood, uh, which was Thunderbolt and Lightning, which eventually uh, would star Jeff Bridges, not Clint Eastwood, because Chimino really wanted to direct it, but Eastwood was not interested in acting without directing. Uh, yeah, okay. He was able to accomplish this by offering to rewrite the sequel for Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry, uh-huh. Magnum Force. <laughs> uh, which, I did not know this, but Magnum Force ended up selling even better than Dirty Harry did. Hmm. Which is really weird, because I've never heard of Magnum Force, and everybody knows Dirty Harry. So this set up Chimino for whatever he wanted to do next, basically. Hmm. Dealey was matched up with Chimino as a writer-director and hired him for the film. Um, Then Chimino decided to team up with writer friend Derek Washburn, who'd co-written Silent Running with him, uh, to help him fix the script. Uh, But this is where the controversy starts. Okay. Um, So Dealey said this later on about this, quote, Whether Chimino hired Washburn as his subcontractor or as his co-writer, was constantly being obfuscated. And there were some harsh words between them later on, or so I was told. Okay. So according to Chimino, they worked together for six weeks on the script. Then Chimino left to begin location scouting, and he would send notes on the locations and like dialogue ideas and character ideas back to Washburn. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he got back from scouting, he read Washburn's draft and really didn't like it at all. Chimino said, quote, I came back and read it, and I just could not believe what I read. It was like it was written by somebody who was mentally deranged. Oh. So Chimino and Washburn then met at the Sunset Marquee and tried to work on it together, but Washburn couldn't take it, so he left, and then Chimino fired him. Gotcha. Then Chimino claims to have rewritten the script entirely on his own and says that's what he shot. Okay. How did it get credited? We'll get there. Okay. So Washburn says that they met for three days at the Sunset Marquee to start this whole thing, to hammer out the plot details, and then Chimino left him on his own and told him he had one month to write the script and he had to just write it all himself. Okay. He says, quote, I had a month. That was it. The clock was ticking. Write the effing script. But all I had to do was watch TV. Those combat cameramen in Vietnam were out there in the field with the guys. I mean, they had stuff that you wouldn't dream of seeing about Iraq. Mm. Uh, so obviously this quote is from yeah, more recent right. <laughs> days um so after he wrote it chimino and joanne corelli who was an associate producer for the film took him to apparently a cheap diner to discuss the draft that he wrote um he recalls <laughs> in his own words quote we finished and joanne looks at me across the table and she says well derek it's f off time i was fired it was a classic case you get a dummy Get him to write the thing, tell him to go F himself, put your name on the thing, and he'll go away. I was so tired, I didn't care. I had been working 20 hours a day for a month. I got on the plane the next day, and I went back to Manhattan and my carpenter job. Wow. That's sad. So two very different stories Wait, of story, what happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So whatever happened, uh, Dealey really liked the script. <laughs> okay. Uh, which was now called The Deer Hunter. Um, the story was now set during the war, and the main character, whose name was Merle, it was named Mike. Um, he was much more likable, not so cynical. They also took uh, other facets of his personality from the original and separated them into three very distinct characters, mm. which turn out to be the three main guys. Gotcha. In the very first version, though, the roles of Mike and Nick were switched. Meaning what? Meaning essentially just swap their names, and that's what happened at the end of the film. Ah, uh, I see. So the character of Mike was the one that ended up staying and in like, yeah, playing roulette. So I don't know why. They decided to switch that. Okay. Eventually. I mean, before he's they the filmed. hero. Yeah. So he doesn't devolve as much right. in this version. Okay. So then we come to the Writers Guild. Who has to arbitrate <laughs> for okay. credits? Oh no! <laughs> um, they actually then awarded Washburn sole writing credit. Okay. So he remind is, me which one was Washburn? Washburn is the second guy. Okay. Who was okay. brought on? Not the director of the film. Right, Chimino. Yeah. Um, so he gets the sole writing credit, um, and then Chimino, Garfinkel, Redeker, and Washburn all get story by. Ah, okay. Because they all contributed to the story. Yeah. Well, Garfinkel and Redeker wrote the original story, which right. was the spec, yes. where they got the roulette idea. Yeah. So they had to be credited yeah. for story by. And then Chimino contributed something. To the story of it. Yeah. yeah. So he gets a story by, and Washburn also gets a story by. Uh, for others. That's, I, uh, I, uh, I want to credit people, but I also am like, come on. Yeah. Come it's on. annoying. So De Niro was the first person cast, of course. Yeah, he's the face of the film. Yeah. Um, And once he was cast, the rest of the cast kind of fell in line. Um, He ended up having a lot of, I mean, he had a ton of pull in the New York theater scene. Uh, Um, So that's that's where a handful of these people came from, uh, including Christopher Walken, John Cazale, and Meryl Streep. Huzzah! Finally on the scene. Yeah. Can I say something controversial? You didn't like her in this? No. What is she? What's memorable? She's a, <laughs> she is a plain face in this. She does nothing to advance the story. Any woman could have been exchanged with her. And here's the thing. I'm excited to go on this journey of this the Academy Awards with her now that she's in the game because I don't get it. Well, I don't get the Meryl Streep thing. It's I don't funny, get the appeal. It's funny that you mentioned this because literally... This is how the character was described that she auditioned for. Okay. Quote, vague stock girlfriend. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here, I'm going to take back what I just said because that just sucks for her. It sucks for all women everywhere. And good for her for, you know, not being so terribly boring. But also, like, if it's that's nothing. what it's, your character yeah. is starting as. What can you do? Yeah. Yeah. I am eager to, uh, I'm eager to see Kramer versus Kramer. I've never seen that. So, like, I'm really willing to give her a chance. But the things I've seen her in, I'm like, what is the hype, my friends? So, join me on the journey. I mean, there has to be some woman who stands out who, like, has all of Hollywood's adoration. I mean, that's Hollywood. I guess. They just choose whoever is the least controversial to give yeah. that to. All right. Well, we'll see. 
Um, so De Niro began traveling to Pennsylvania steel towns and getting to know the towns and the people who worked there to accurately portray his character. Good for him. <laughs> what a good little actor. The entire film was shot on location, which is crazy. No shooting at all was done in a soundstage. Wow. Um, and it is the first film about Vietnam that was filmed in Southeast Asia. Hmm. After the war. Yeah. Um, so it was mostly filmed, like all of the Vietnam scenes were filmed in Thailand near the River Kwai. Ah, um, they and knew it. in Bangkok. They're like, we know we can get some good shots there. Um, the steel mill and town scenes were shot in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Ohio in different towns that were... The part of uh, Pennsylvania we like to call Pennsylvania. Uh, yep. And uh, they filmed in Washington State for the hunting scenes. I was like... This doesn't look anything no, like I Pennsylvania. I thought that too. I was like, this is not Western PA. This is like the most fake looking Pennsylvania. Yeah. Ugh. The foliage was just so weird. Yeah. Like the, and the huge the sh- mountains. Oh, please. Oh, please. So that's the state of Washington. Well, that's good to know because I was confused. Um, and one really cool thing about this is that they were given access to the U.S. steel furnaces in Cleveland to film inside for, for the, the scenes steel in scenes. the steel mill. That's yeah. cool. Those scenes were very scary. Like yeah. just in terms of what was happening happening. like it just was very overwhelming um so now i want to come to john cazale okay because his life and story are just cut way too short okay so i'm going to talk about him because he gave a great contribution to hollywood and the film industry and this film among others and so I just want to highlight him okay. because he's worth talking about. I don't know what you're about to say because I feel like you're saying this in a way that you think I know what you're about to say. And I no, don't. I know you don't know. Okay. So. And I purposely not talked to you about this oh. to get your true reaction. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, so John Cazale grew up in Massachusetts, then studied drama at Oberlin College and transferred to the BFA program at Boston University. So he's an actor. Through and through. Um, he moved to New York City pretty much right out of college and became a cab driver and a photographer, which supported him in between roles. Um, he quickly rose the ranks of the New York theater scene. Um, he ended up meeting Al Pacino when he was working as a messenger for Standard Oil, where Al Pacino also worked. Nice. It's pretty funny. Pacino recalled about this, quote, When I first saw John, I instantly thought he was so interesting. Everybody was always around him because he had a very congenial way of expressing himself. Aw, Reno. <laughs> they ended up being cast opposite each other uh, shortly after they met in The Indian Once the Bronx in Connecticut, which then transferred to Off-Broadway for a successful run in which they both won Obie Awards for their performances. Oh, nice. Um, in 1971, he ended up reprising a role he had played already in the play Line opposite Richard Dreyfus. And was seen there by casting director Fred Roos, who gave his name to Francis Ford Coppola for his upcoming film, The Godfather. Mm. Um, Fredo was Cazale's first film role. And he was thrilled to be working with Marlon Brando, one of his acting idols growing up, Mm. especially wanting to be a New York theater actor. Coppola was so impressed with his impact with the small role that he decided to write a part for him in his next film, The Conversation. Uh, followed quickly by playing Fredo again in The Godfather Part Two, in which he was given an even more important role. Mm. Um, he followed that immediately with Sidney Lumet's Dog Day Afternoon, cementing himself with the likes of De Niro, Pacino, Warren Beatty, and Richard Dreyfuss as one of the most in-demand surefire actors of the 70s. Um, then he went back to the theater, appearing twice more in plays with Al Pacino, 
Then in 1976, he starred in Measure for Measure at the Delacorte Theater in Central Park with Sam Waterston and a fresh young actress from the Yale School of Drama, Meryl Streep. Oh, boy. They immediately fell in love and moved in together during the run of the show. (laughs) Okay. I didn't know they were together. That's nice. So only a few months later, Cazale nabbed the starring role in Agamemnon at the Vivian Beaumont, which would be his first Broadway production. Nice. Um, unfortunately, he only appeared in the first preview and then fell suddenly ill and had to drop out of the production. Um, through a series of tests over the next week, he discovered that he had lung cancer Aww. and it was already almost untreatable. Um, he was a very serious chain smoker. Yeah, I was all just of his ask. life. Yeah, okay. in like intensely, he was mm-hmm. always smoking. So De Niro, who was desperate to work with him one last time. Uh, begged him to take the role in The Deer Hunter. Aww. Um, And Meryl Streep, who was going to drop out of the film when he got his diagnosis, (laughs) (laughs) agreed to keep it when he finally signed on to the film so that they could also work together again. Oh, no. That's so sweet. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, the production insurance company was not willing to insure him on the film, knowing that it was possible or likely that he would die during the production. Um, and then the production company also did not want to pay the higher premiums. Um, so Chimino and De Niro and Streep and Cazale, they all worked together to rearrange the shooting schedule so that any scene he appeared in could be shot first to Aww. like ensure that if he could do it, he, he w- would be yeah. able to. Oh my gosh. Um, That's so sweet. Then De Niro personally paid the insurance premiums so that Cazale could be in the film. <laughs> You need to have your community. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, They all said it felt like a dream, all of them working together before he died. Um, They were able to shoot all of his scenes with no issues, and then he passed away on March 13th, 1978, um, and he never got to see a cut of the film. Streep was by his side nearly every moment until he died. She said later of his death, quote, I didn't get over it. I didn't want to get over it. No matter what you do, the pain is always there in some recess of your mind, and it affects everything that happens afterward. I think you can assimilate the pain and go on without making an obsession of it. I think I want to write a movie about that. (laughs) I'm sure someone has. Yeah, but don't steal that idea from me. (laughs) I'm claiming it. Um, Al Pacino said of this time, quote, I've hardly ever seen a person, Streep, so devoted to someone who is falling away like John was. To see her in that act of love for this man was overwhelming. His good friend, playwright Israel Horowitz, said in his eulogy, John Cazale happens once in a lifetime. He was an invention, a small perfection. It is no wonder his friends feel such anger upon waking from their sleep to discover that Cazale sleeps on with kings and counselors. With Booth and Keene and Jimmy Dean and Bernhardt, Gitry and Deuce, with Stanislavski, with Groucho, Benny, and Allen. He will make friends in his new place. He is easy to love. Oh. So, in all, Kazale only acted in five films. Wow. All five were nominated for Best Picture. Wow. And three of them won Best Picture. Wow. <laughs> What an incredible mark on film history to make. Um, He then was also like archival footage of him from scenes that weren't used in the first two Godfathers was used in Godfather Part 3. Oh, wow. Which, of course, was also nominated for Best Picture. Wow. Um, But, of course, he didn't act for that film. Yeah. Technically. Um, So I just wanted to mention him because 
he's somebody that people don't really know who he is. Mm. Um, but all, I mean, it's very interesting to read quotes from De Niro, Pacino, Meryl Streep, from all of these people in this era, Coppola, Gene Hackman. Mm. They all worked with him on Best Picture nominated or winning films. And all of them opposite him were nominated for awards wow. too. Um, and they all just say like how much better of an actor he made you because oh. he just gave everything he could to everything that he did. Um, so I thought it was worth mentioning him, giving him a little shout out because um, people don't really film buff people know who he is, sure. but not a lot of just the general public know who he is. Well, and it sounds like he didn't have very much of a public persona. Like, no, he didn't. He was a working actor, but yeah. he wasn't like... Well, and a lot of people think and say, and probably is true, that, like, I mean, he would right. have gone down as one of the best actors yeah. with Pacino or Robert De Niro yeah. or any of them. Yeah. Well, and, like, his star is clearly rising at the same rate as them. Right. Even if he's not getting the same nominations necessarily, he's mm-hmm. on pace with everyone else. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, with that, we come to the end of our time. The end of the story of the deer hunter. Mm. It went on to win many awards. Yeah. As we talked about, was a little controversial. Yeah. But it's very worth watching. I mean, it's hard it's hard to say it's controversial because I don't think it is controversial truly. I think it's just Well, and a lot one thing that a lot of people really didn't like about it was that they were saying there's no historical precedence for Russian roulette being played in Vietnam. Okay. So that's one thing that like a lot of people got upset about because it was like, well, nobody ever played. They didn't force anyone to play Russian roulette. So why are you putting that in the movie? And then their response was like, well, in war, you do a lot of crazy, horrible things to pe- to right. people. So like, why can't it just be a metaphor for yeah people treating each other horribly? Also, you don't know everything that happened everywhere, first of all. Also that. And also, yeah, it, it's a... It's a very succinct way to show the unpredictable brutality of what was happening and, like, the fact that you are so out of control and, Mm -hmm. yeah. And that in war, you don't know when the bullet is going to hit you. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, like, literally a perfect metaphor for war. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in the ending, too, it's just, like... Right. A huge punch to the gut. Yeah. And people really did not like that. They felt like... It was a total drag of America yeah. to sing God Bless America in such a way. Yeah, interesting. As if they were, like, cursing America. Yeah. Which, I mean. They have every right to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, America cursed them first. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I think a modern perspective on the film is all pretty unanimous. But, obviously, at the time, I think it's really hard when, like, a lot of America had gone through that horrible horrible tragedy well and there was a reason why people were not really quote-unquote allowed to make a film about vietnam right well and if it's something that is so horrible for the american public but you can't say anything negative about america like what are you supposed to do yeah yes it is true yeah well that brings us finally to our final segment Uh, In which we thank the Academy for things relating to this film, these people, things about the industry. 
Um, what would you like to thank the Academy for today, Kristen? <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I'm a sucker for a story. So mm-hmm. I would like to thank the Academy for the community of people that someone like John Cazale had around him. That is an authentic form of not just friendship or camaraderie, but like partnership in the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that is just so essential for life. I mean, you can't be in the industry if you don't have people around you that will love you and stand by your side and help you because everybody needs that at some point. And I'm I'm very, very moved at that support and that love and that show of dedication and of honoring like his craft mm-hmm. because he had something so beautiful that they admired and knew was going to be put out and to ensure that that could happen is just such a beautiful, moving, moving thing. So, yeah, in some ways, I wanted to tell you about it before you watched the movie because oh, watching no. the movie definitely it definitely puts a different light on those scenes. Yeah, than the like, they're all best friends, right. and especially in the moments where he and Meryl Streep are on screen together, yeah. like interacting, Aww. are just so cute. Oh. Also, I love that they had such a pure love. That's yeah. so beautiful. <laughs> That's so beautiful. <laughs> uh. It reminds me so much of so many of the other people that have been young and gone too soon in this yeah. industry mm-hmm. who like, I don't know, they just burn so bright and they have yeah. so many people around them that care so deeply about them. Yeah. Yeah, it's a common thing. Yeah. I would like to thank the Academy for making a film about something you believe in. Heck yeah. I mean, obviously, this is very pointed. Very. They're (laughs) saying a lot of things about the war and about, even about, like, small town America. Yeah. And the working class. Yeah. About immigrants. I mean, they're all like Russian-American immigrants. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. About veterans. About the reintegration into society. Mm -hmm. Um, And sadly, like, it also feels like the updated version of the best best years years of our lives. Yeah, absolutely. It's very, very similar to that. And when you were describing how they split the character into three characters, I was like, I wonder if that was part of the inspiration, Mm. especially when the one comes back and he is crippled and Mm -hmm. like has lost his limbs and, you know, all those things reminded me a lot of that movie. Yeah. Well, and it's like so sad that that is, I mean, it's still true up to today, which is horrible, but like, I don't know how many times you have to see it over and over and over before you like help someone out. Yeah. Anyways, thanks to the Academy for artists sticking to their guns and telling a good story Mm -hmm. and one that is very valuable. Yeah, definitely. I would like to thank the Academy for clever marketing ploys when they're Uh appropriate yeah (laughs) (laughs) i say that tentatively because i don't always agree with people's schemes (laughs) but in this case i think that it was a very smart move to get the critical acclaim first before it went out to the public because Mm -hmm. the public is going to be polarized by it because it is a small town story right it's a story that everyone has a connection to at this time Mm -hmm. and uh the public response would be so different than 
someone who's watching it as a piece of art. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, like you and I are watching it as a piece of art, but also as a piece of history because mm-hmm. it is a very historical movie in a lot of ways. Um, but for these people at this time, you know, it's a very in the moment. And uh, so I just, I love the cleverness. I love the utilizing and the observation that went into some previous films like Annie Hall and like noticing what that effect was and how you can make it marketable for your own film. Mm-hmm. I think it's very clever and very, very well utilized. Yeah. Um, and I would once again like to thank the Academy for Theater Kids. Theater Kids. We're taking over the world. <laughs> I just love that they all met each other in theater in New York and they yeah. all got to work together and they just thought that that was so fun. And then they all went on to do Hollywood stuff. That's a dream, right? I know. It's so fun yeah. and cool. Yeah. You just learn so many good things in theater. Yeah, you do. Everyone should be a theater kid. Yeah, you missed out if you weren't. Yeah, the world would be a lot better off. Uh I'm going to pause here because I'm not so sure if everyone should be a theater kid. There's a lot of uh, (laughs) annoying things in that community. So, but it's definitely something that's exciting and wonderful to see come through. And you learn a lot of good things about like empathy and like. Yeah, that's true. Teamwork. How to present yourself in public. How to support each other. Time management. Mm -hmm. Some people learn that. Some people don't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is all we have for you today. Yeah, this episode's almost as long as the movie, which my one critique of this movie is that it could have been a lot shorter. It's a little bit long, but I will say it's probably one of my favorite movies of the Oscars so far in character development. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty good. It I would agree. definitely does a good, it, it's a really good job of showing the range of each character sure yeah even the, the friends that aren't in vietnam with them like, right yeah you see them at like high highs and mm-hmm. low lows and like in their mid and like their working life what they do after work yeah. what they do here what they do there you know yeah how they interact with each of them are like i don't know it's just a really interesting character study i feel like sure it's hard to do that in only an hour and a half I mean, you could have cut 20 minutes from the wedding and then you still would have had a three-hour movie. <laughs> they tried to get them to cut lots from the wedding. Oh, my gosh. But, uh, oh, my word. They didn't, and it won Best Picture anyways. <sighs> well, thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thanks for sitting through all of that. Um, quite, quite a lot to say today. A long, maybe slightly depressing episode. Yeah, that's for sure. Just like the film. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but we hope you'll join us again. next week when we're bringing you a new academy archives thank you for tuning in to thank the academy you can follow us on social media at thank the academy podcast on instagram and at thank academy pod on twitter if you enjoy listening to the show make sure to leave a five-star rating on apple podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform the theme song was created by the one and only noah heisinga Join us next week on Thank the Academy.